The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there is a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow if you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us, and you can follow live tweeting of the show at hashtag BigBeaconRadio. And today we're fortunate to be joined by a brand new dean of a brand new engineering school, Jenna Carpenter. Welcome to the show, Jenna. Thanks, Dave. Glad to be here. Well, and and I've been I've been seeing your name in cre- with increasing frequency. I think I saw something uh, uh, about you in the Chronicle recently, and I've seen things in ASWE Prism, and so was really happy when um, when you. Uh, uh, said you would uh, join the show, and and we want to talk about some of the things that you've been speaking out about. But before we do that, I'd like to just um, find out a little bit um, more about you. You've been a faculty member, an administrator. Your um, professional background is in mathematics. You're a dot connector with roles in a number of important organizations in STEM education. But let's uh, let's hop in the time machine and and go back to uh, earlier influences what what were some of the earlier influences in your life that that put you on your current path well you know i i've always said that i was always sort of attracted to math even as a little kid i liked blocks which are really pre math skills so mm-hmm. um you know my uh, parents uh, were depression era babies i came along kind of late in life so uh, i picked up their depression era work ethic um, you know, education was always important in our house. Uh, school was always important. So um, math was just a subject that I always liked and sort of gravitated toward. Yeah, but and, and so, and, and how did that lead to, uh, you know, things like getting a Ph.D. and going on to becoming a faculty member and a director and associate dean and dean and that sort of thing? So, um, you know, started out um, as a math major at Louisiana Tech. Um, yep. I really wanted to teach, uh, but um, just received a lot of pushback. Everybody said, don't do that, don't teach. I actually had people say, oh, you're too smart to teach. I'm thinking, oh, <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, so, but, you know, just, I said, finally said, okay, never mind, never mind, you know, I'll, I'll get a math degree. But then, you know, what are you going to do with that? Uh, and after I got to college, I realized, you know, I could, if I got a graduate degree, I could teach at college. So that's what I decided to do. Uh, and um, applied to LSU. Uh, they wanted me to apply for a fellowship to get a PhD. Initially, I was just kind of thinking, you know, maybe get a master's degree. But I got the fellowship, which, and I had to get a PhD. Of course, that was one of the wisest decisions ever made. But um, 
Uh, so, you know, got the Ph.D. in math, uh, came back to Louisiana Tech. I really wasn't looking to do that, but uh, they uh, recruited me. And it was a fantastic environment. did so many innovative things uh, in the uh, 26 years that I was there. Uh, very innovative administrative structure, interdisciplinary approach to education research. So I got to be a part of a lot of really cool things, which gave me a lot of cool opportunities. Yeah, it's such a nice story. And, and you know, on this uh, show, uh, Mark, and I, Mark Somerville and I wrote in A Whole New Engineer about education of this century being <clears throat> about unleashing young people. And, and so we're always interested in our guests and, and the kinds of unleashing experiences that they've had. So in, where, where maybe there was something in your life that you were afraid to do, but someone or something or looking deep inside yourself enabled you to have the courage to do something that was a little scary. And I'm wondering what, if you can think back and, and share uh, some unleashing experiences or unleashing influences in your life, people who sure. helped you unleash. Uh, but, you know, in the 90s, there was a call to sort of reform engineering education. Uh, the uh, National Science Foundation sponsored a lot of the coalitions to, to try to develop some things. Yes. And at Louisiana Tech, we um, had a brand new college of engineering <coughs> and science They had merged math, chemistry, physics, and with engineering. And we were looking at doing some things in an innovative way. So it was really a ripe culture, if you will, for, for tackling some of these. So there were about six faculty. I got to be invited to be part of that group. And we just said, what if we just started from scratch? So we just started with a clean slate and thought if we were going to build an engineering curriculum today with all that we know, with all the, the calls for changes in engineering education, um, adding those key non-technical skills, project-based, hands-on. Uh, so we, we just created something from scratch, uh, and it was a fantastic thing to be a part of and um, gave me a lot of freedom to, again, dream about doing cool things. And uh, to be honest, I taught in that curriculum for 18 years till I left Louisiana Tech this past year, so it was uh, a fantastic place to, uh, to try things out. And we've revised that curriculum about three times over the years and uh, set my own son through it, probably the best advertisement I can give you, but uh, that's really where I guess I got an opportunity, an unleashing opportunity to think about doing things in a different way. Yeah, there's a, been a fair amount, in, and which, uh, I can't remember, which coalition was uh, Louisiana Tech a we part of? We were affiliated with the Foundation Coalition. We uh, actually had an Action Agenda grant, so it was a little bit different funding, kind of came right after the, founda- the coalition, so we were part of the Foundation Coalition. Yeah, there's a fair amount of, uh, com- you know, in, in retrospect, people look back at the the coalition's and it's kind of, uh, there's sad stories told. Well, a lot was done and, and not a lot stuck. And I'm, I'm hearing a little different story um, uh-huh. uh, from, from you about your experience with the, the coalitions. People have asked us that a lot because, you know, we did make these radical changes and it stuck. And so we've, we've tried to reflect and think, okay, why did it stick here? If my own personal uh, feeling is that, not only did we have administrators who gave permission for us to do this, but we were involved in it. So uh, uh, one of the future deans was involved. Uh, of course, I was a department head and associate dean. I was involved. Uh, the associate dean before me for undergraduate studies was a key player from the very beginning. So our administrators were really committed to doing this. And then we soon developed a reputation. It was a great way for us to differentiate ourselves um, from our competitors, if you will, to be different. Yep. Um, and we got so much positive feedback. It sort of became who we were. 
And so then that makes it really hard to get rid of. And again, the, the key people involved in it, who developed it, who taught in it, you know, term after term after term, were the leaders in the college. So we weren't about to get rid of it. So, I, you know, a lot of times that, that doesn't happen. You know, somebody down the way creates these things, but, you know, the dean, associate deans aren't usually daily involved in that sort of stuff. I think that's one of the reasons it stuck. Yeah, and we see that in, in the kinds of things that are happening now, the things that do stick, uh, it, you know, and you've used the word a culture and a fair amount of what you write about, and that I think that is actually the important word. It, you've, you're playing to the existing culture and modifying it, um, uh, kind of trying to move it in, in some way, and, and, if it, and if it moves and gets embraced by the people in it, then it, then it sticks, and if, if not, then it, the culture eats the innovations for lunch. Yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah, so, um, all right, so let's, and so uh, in the interest of uh, uh, honesty and advertising, we, you know, we advertise this uh, session as being about um, um, uh, women in engineering, and, and we're certainly interested in that, and, and I guess I also am very interested in your being the dean of a brand new school of engineering and what your plans are. So let's let's talk a little bit about women in engineering. And when you were at Louisiana Tech, you started a program to quote uh, support a culture of success for women in engineering and science. And what was it that motivated you to help create this program? Well, I uh, I became involved with WePAN, Women in Engineering Proactive Network. It's a yep. national organization that really works to transform culture in higher education so that we do a better job of, of supporting women in engineering. So I, I joined their board around 10 years ago, um, and that was about the point in time that I really became interested in learning more about you know, women in engineering and STEM fields and you know, why we didn't have very many or what the issues were. And uh, so uh, a few years after that, we actually got a National Science Foundation Advance Grant, which is what you're referring to, to create a culture of success. So the Advance Program really looks at trying to... Uh, advanced women faculty in STEM fields because we don't have very many women faculty and they often serve as role models and things for, for women students. So for the last eight years, I ran that uh, particular program at Louisiana Tech and we, we did a wide variety of things. We uh, did um, uh, mentoring sessions for both men and women. We had professional development training for women. We had a male advocates and allies group. We brought in the absolute best Speakers in the country, Scott Page, Virginia mm-hmm. Ballion, um, you know, folks like that. Um, and, you know, of course, it was a research study, so we had a lot of data, interviews, and, and we really moved the needle in pretty significant ways. Um, decreased isolation that women felt, uh, increased men's awareness about issues and things that they could do. Really was a lot of fun. Yeah, and you mentioned some of the, if, as you look back on it, um, what were you said you moved the needle what what were some of the what were the keys you know if you were to point at two or three things that were really important to moving the needle what would you looking back uh, call out well um, you know we we had some initial sessions but you know it was just kind of hard for people to wrap their minds around you know uh, all these cultural issues are, are sort of complicated one of the things we did was bring Scott Page to campus from the University of Michigan he's a mathematical economist has written a book called The Difference talks about the fact that diverse teams really do trump uh, teams of experts if you're solving hard problems. And, you know, Scott's a fantastic speaker. Um, you know, somehow when he says this stuff, everybody goes, oh, and they get it. So for mm-hmm. us, that was a huge turning point. We brought him to campus. People really got uh, a handle on what we were trying to do. And then they were saying, okay, now we get it. Now, now what are those issues again? So, you know, we did training about the different kinds of issues, implicit bias and stereotype threat and things for several years. And then people said, 
Okay, okay, now I understand the issues. Now, what are we supposed to do about those? So we talked about then strategies for managing around those sorts of things. So that was really sort of the evolution of our project, but really bringing Scott Page in just sort of uh, what helped us sort of punch through, if you will. Oh, that's interesting that, that it was an intellectual influence because, uh, you know, Scott's uh, – um, I know Scott because of my involvement in evolutionary computation and genetic algorithms and the whole complex adaptive systems and uh-huh. Santa Fe network. I was a University of Michigan student myself and had John Holland as an advisor. We had a um, memoriam for John on, on the show, but uh, the interest, it's interesting that it's rooted in uh, complex systems, uh, uh, science that kind of un- unlocked, uh, was one of the keys that helped yeah. intellectually unlock uh, unlock things for people. So that unlocked things, but then, okay, so that, that gets things going. But what, if you were to say point at a later phase as to an element or something that emerged that, that was special and helped make things work, what else would you call out? I, you know, again, I just tried to find the absolute best people in the country. So we brought Virginia Valiant in after we brought Scott Page in. You yeah. know? So if you bring absolutely the, the best people on the planet in to talk about these issues, I mean, they're great for a reason. And so soon we got a reputation that, you know, gosh, you're we're bringing in these fantastic people. So people came and they listened and they learned. Um, and so that really helped us move the needle. I, you know, if we'd done something else, I, I'm not sure we'd have been successful. Well, and and kind of changing the conversation and having people, um, you know, this show is actually about about that having kind of the the intellectual building blocks in order to make change and what is change about and and what kinds of changes are are needed and and uh, and yet so a lot of programs for women tend to be isolated and right. they tend to be. Um, um, and this is, I mean, they're, they're well-intentioned, but they tend to be silos and they tend sometimes to create little ghettos where women hang out and, and it doesn't affect the larger culture. And I'm not hearing that in your conversation. I'm yeah. hearing that there's something else that happened. And so I'm curious, beyond the intellectual formation phase, what was it that enabled this to be more of a breakout? Well, I think one thing, because I've thought about this, because there are a lot of advanced programs, and uh, they all do fantastic things, but they don't all impact the entire school, I guess, in such a way. Uh, You know, I think my being an administrator, I would say that very few advanced grants are run by an associate dean. You know, it's not too common. Uh, I'd spent 10 years as a department head. I hired a huge chunk of the people in 10 years in our school, our college. Mm. Mm. Um, So... um, and, you know, I used everything I could think of to get people to come. Uh, I had a reputation for glammy food. I helped <laughs> one-hour sessions at noon. Uh, I did all kinds of stuff. And um, so, you know, it enticed people to come. And like I said, when they did come, they found out we had great content. And so, you know, they would keep coming back. And as you look back, what um – and, and, you know, cultural change, it's hard sometimes. You know, people, yeah. uh, and I got asked this a lot about the iFoundry initiative in Illinois. It's like, well, okay, so in what ways is the curriculum totally different from, from the day that you started? And cultural change isn't like that. Cultural mm-hmm. change is is people showing up every day in different ways and things that were previously not permissible now being permissible. Maybe that's a good way to ask about it. What After, after this program was in 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 uh, in the running for a bit, what what was it that people had permission to do, or they felt empowered to do that they previously felt uh, disempowered or disenfranchised to do? Again, just you know, talking about the issues, um, 
and uh, emphasizing that, you know, I mean, uh, implicit bias is one of the big issues, and that's not anybody's fault, you know, yeah. and we're all guilty of that. Um, you know, we opened a lot of our programs like mentoring. I didn't spend any NSF money that was not allowed, but the mentoring program is open to men and women both, so yeah. that kind of put us all on the same boat rather than dividing us into to camps. Again, all the training I did, we invited men, women, we invited everybody, so that put us kind of all on the same team, um, and uh, you know, we were we were kind of careful. When you're doing a lot of this really uh, significant kind of conceptual change or, you know, challenging people's ideas or values or views of the world, you need to give it time to stew. And so yep. we would have it, and then there would be, you know, some other smaller sessions and some time in between. And a lot of times people would come to my office and they would go, oh, my gosh, you know, that thing we were talking about, I saw it. I saw it happened. It's like, yep. yeah. So, you know, you gave it time yep. to sink in. We just sort of layered it. You know, we did a little bit of layer, and we waited, and we added another layer on top of that. So it gave people time to digest it. Uh, and, and began to see it happen in their world. And now they had a label for it. They knew what it was. And all that really spurred growth, too. Yeah, nice. And, I, and, and uh, talking, you're talking about the mentoring of both men and women. And one of the things I valued in your, among many things in your TED Talk that I like, but uh, sometimes um, men in, in listening to some of these things get the feeling like they're the enemy and, and uh, unilaterally perpetrating the evil on, <laughs> on, on women. And, and, uh, and you point out, I think quite rightly, and I think wisely in terms of moving ahead, that it's these biases, we all carry these biases, and the yeah. culture the culture isn't a, a men's culture. It's a culture that we're all in, and, right. and um, to change it, we have to kind of change it, change it together. Right. Yeah, and so um, um, I guess, you know, so, you know, we've had, and this show is very much about uh, change processes, so we've had change experts, guys like Adam Kahane and Ed Shine, John Cotter, guys like that on the show. We've had, you know, we've had people talking about changes at institutions, but we're mainly interested in practice. So you've been kind of a change maker and you're about ready to start a brand spanking new school. So what, what have you, what have you, and I, I heard, I think I heard some of the lessons of change and what you said before, but if you were to say, what, you know, what were the two or three things that you've learned about complex organizational change through your, um, your many years of moving the needle at uh, in Ruston, Louisiana. I, I think, you know, you've got to have a, a good rationale for why you're doing something different. Mm. So you need to be able to articulate that in a way that meets people where they live so they can yes. see why it matters to them. Yep. It's not just something that matters to somebody else, but it has to impact me and my world before I'm going to get motivated to get involved. Um, I've just always been uh, good at, I mean, I'm passionate about certain things, but I've just always been good at communicating things just sort of naturally, I guess. So I think being able to do that is hugely helpful because if you're passionate and you can articulate it and you've got a, a good game plan, then people get excited, they want to get on board, and that really helps move the needle as well. And, you know, I will be the first to admit that with all of these things, you know, you, you have some ideas, you try some things, some of those don't work, you go back to the drawing board, you beat your head against the wall. Uh, you know, it wasn't like we set out to do these things. So you try some stuff and you keep doing the things that work and then you talk to other folks and read and try something else when things don't work. Yeah, well, and I think that li- the literature on, on entrepreneurial thought and action is actually pretty clear. This whole idea that you plan something once and for all 
is the impression that we get of how things should go from thinking about big companies and, and already successful institutions. But when you're trying to make change, this idea of making little bets and, and failing small and learning from that is, is central. And so I'm hearing a big part of that in, in, um, sure. in what you're doing and then communicating the, the urgency and, the, uh, and, and to the people is, is another thing that, that we hear that we hear a lot. We've got a, just a, a, f- a few seconds before we take a break. So um, it, you've also been a community builder. You mentioned your, actually as a as foundational, your activity in WePan Women in Engineering Proactive Network. What what what's that activity about? Well, I am currently the immediate past president, so been on the board um, almost uh, all of the last 10 years. I think there was one period in there where I wasn't. And WePAN just does a really good job of connecting uh, institutions, corporate um, entities, nonprofit groups across the country uh, in trying to transform the culture in higher education because the culture that, that engineering students take to the workplace with them is the one that they pick up uh, when they're in college. And uh, that culture, unfortunately, fuels a lot of the behavior that, um, uh, that we really don't want uh, and that they take with them then into the workplace. So WePAN's been really good at uh, sponsoring some of the research or articulating, disseminating some of that, doing some great uh, communication. have got a great webinar series they've done. So just been a, a part of a number of projects with WePAN uh, to try to move that needle. Great. And... and um and I think you know the the theme of of women in engineering will continue in our conversation. But I think in the in the next segment, I'd like to switch and hear a little bit about what what your plans are to uh, you know create the um, engineering engineering education of the the near future at Campbell University. So um, let's uh, stay tuned. This is Big Beacon Radio with our uh, special guest Jenna Carpenter. And in the next segment, we're going to talk about the the founding of a new engineering school in North Carolina. Okay. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. 
And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Uh, and get, we urge you to get your copy of that book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education, uh, wholenewengineer.org. We've got 3,000 new copies coming off the presses in a few weeks, and uh, we, we sold out the, the, the first uh, run of a little about 5,500 copies. So um, getting some more copies out in the circulation that's available in hardcover and, and ebook form. And before the break, we were talking to Jenna Carpenter, the uh, founding dean of a new engineering program at Campbell University, a private university in, in, um, in North Carolina. And um, uh, Jenna, you're, you're the founding dean of a new engineering school. Um, you've, um, you've been a, um, uh, and, and recently you wrote a nice piece uh, for ASWE PRISM which uh, talked about the uh, millennials as quote food court kids. Um, let, let's start there. What did what what did do you mean by that expression, and how does it connect to uh, engineering education? Well, because I've you know been teaching for a long time, I've got a lot of uh, former students that contact me, and uh, really have noticed an uptick in the last uh, couple of years with kids who graduate, get out there, and are, are unhappy, and they they're leaving jobs within. Sometimes just a few months or, or a couple of years of, of starting those jobs, those careers, and um, I think a lot of it is that um, you know, we attract kids to engineering. Uh, if we're doing a good job, we're telling them about the innovation, creativity that's possible. Um, uh, we bring hands-on projects uh, into the curriculum in an early way uh, and let them do a lot of cool things. And a lot of millennial students really are interested in doing a lot of stuff. They want to be in the honors program and they want to do study abroad and they'll be in the band and they want to you know, do engineering. So they're wanting to do all these these cool things. So my, my food court analogy was sort of that... Um, at least when I take my own twenty-something uh, kids to the food court, you know they want to they want the sandwich from this place, and then get a cookie from over there, and maybe want to go to Starbucks and get a you know frappuccino. They're not happy with getting the whole meal at one place, right? They want the best of everything, and I, I think students come to us uh, with a lot of that mentality. So they really do pick and choose a lot of outstanding programs on campus and do well in all of those things. And at least part of the frustration when they go to the work world is that. Um, Work in, in a lot of these places looks the same as it did 30 or 40 years ago. So they're stuck uh, in a uh, sort of a low uh, man or woman on the totem pole position. They have to do uh, kind of a lot of grunt work that doesn't have a lot of impact. Uh, they don't have a lot of choice over what they do. And I, I think that's why they're bailing. At least that's what I'm hearing when I talk to our recent graduates. And, um, you know, kids are interested in uh, being challenged, doing something that matters, that makes a difference. Uh, and having a little bit of choice, uh, and I think that we need to do a better job of preparing them for the workforce, but I think that the uh, corporate world needs to stop and take a look. Uh, a lot of uh, you know, HR departments at major uh, corporations will tell you we can't ha- hang on to our new graduates, and uh, I'm not sure that they have tapped into what the reason is, but I think that that really is a reason. So uh, we need to provide kids with some uh, opportunity, help them see the impact of what they're doing, and you know, just because work has been organized this way till now doesn't mean it has to be organized that way. We could do things a different way. Well, and it's been it's been organized. You know, we've had uh, people like Edward DC on the show who are instrumental to helping us think differently about human motivation and and uh, guys like Dan Pink that help popularize those views. But you know, the, our view of of human motivation has changed. We used to think that high rewards 
paying people lots of money would lead to their higher performance. We're finding out for creative jobs yeah. that that's exactly wrong. And yeah. and so we've got we've we've got our a lot of our quote common sense about about uh, about human motivation is just fundamentally flawed, um, if not actually 180 degrees out of phase. And we've got a system that's aligned with those old ideas, essentially behaviorist ideas that we're right. a bunch of pigeons in a Skinner box, and it, and it isn't that way. Mm-mm. Thoughts? Yeah, uh, you know, again, I'm the child of depressionary parents. My mom's 92, which is you know a little old for somebody my age, but uh, so for me. Uh, you know, I, I've got enough of that uh, that work ethic, and you know, get a job, keep a job, make a salary. Yep. Uh, so for people my age, that worked, but it doesn't. I mean, these kids are saying, you know, the six figure salary and all the perks are nice. Thanks, but no thanks. You know, they they grew up in a different time. They don't have that same urgency or you know, uh, focus around a job that um, that earlier generations had. And you know, they want to make a difference. They want impact. Uh, they're not asking for the moon. Uh, I do see kids that are happy. Some of them go to small firms where they get to be jack-of-all-trades, so that's more interesting, and they do see immediate impact with what they do. Some of them go to bigger firms where they get to do rotations. I think that's a savvy idea. You move them around different parts of the country over the first two or three years, and then give them some choice. It doesn't have to be totally open, but you know, let them have some choice about where they go and what they do. And uh, some of these places will let them do an MBA on the side. Again, kids are willing to juggle a lot of stuff, and uh, so those are really the more successful models that I'm seeing. Yeah. No, and I, I couldn't agree more. I've had some recent experience. I was uh, just doing some work with a firm down in Brazil with lots of young kids, and they're having exactly this problem of the old ways of pathways to promotion in the company not working and the young people wanting more sooner. Of course, the other thing that they see is they see the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world and people being very successful at a very young age, and they know that it's not necessary in, in our world to um, – to, to wait your turn. There have been people who have been right. very successful by not waiting their turn. And so there's, a, there's, there's also an impatience with, uh, with, with time frames in companies that are expecting loyalty that isn't, you know, that isn't really returned. You, your average yeah. time at a company now is much less than, right. than back 25 right. years ago. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so you've just got, yeah, so and you, we were talking before the show that you, you, your heart is in, in Ruston, Louisiana, that you were educated there, you went back there, you've taught there, uh, um, all, you know, almost three decades, and and um, and uh, little school in North Carolina made you uh, a godfathery an offer that you couldn't refuse to be the the founding dean of a new engineering school. Um, tell our listeners what what that opportunity is about. Yes, yeah, so they approached me uh, last year, and uh, we're looking to found an engineering school. And uh, so I, you know, I took a look at it. New engineering schools don't come along very often. And the more I looked, the more interested I was. They uh, had done a really savvy job. They'd done about 18 months of planning. They had done a needs assessment. They had laid out a tenure plan. So, I mean, it was, you know, solidly funded and planned. And uh, Campbell has actually rolled out several new schools. They've started a med school. Uh, have had a law and pharmacy school for many years, started a nursing program, a, a doctor of physical therapy. So they've started a bunch of programs in the last five or six years, which means they know how to do it. Right? This is not something that they don't know how to do. So I was really impressed with the support, the enthusiasm, the case they made. Uh, we're right here in the Research Triangle region. It's sort of like the Silicon Valley for engineering. Yeah. Um, and again, we're well-funded. Uh, so uh, the more I looked, the more intriguing it became. And... Uh, it was clear that they would be totally open to um, 
to doing something innovative, which is what I wanted to do. I didn't want to do an also-ran program. You know, I know enough about uh, entering education research and, you know, efforts to attract a more diverse uh, group of students to engineering that I wanted to do that. And they were like, sure, sounds great. So um, it's just an offer I couldn't pass up. Yeah, and uh, that's that sounds like a, a great offer. And, and so it, in... Um and what your I think your incoming class uh, comes in in August this year is August, that right? That's right. That's right. Yep. So you got you got kids coming on board. So that I remember in iFoundry that that was that kind of helped sharpen our uh, our our focus and attention that we had kids walking in the door. So what uh, in what ways is this uh, program um, at Campbell going to uh, be different than some of our old school legacy programs? Well, one of the things we're doing is a very uh, hands-on, project-based, team-based freshman curriculum. It's actually called Living with the Lab. It's the one that I helped develop at Louisiana Tech. Uh, they have been great to partner with us. Uh, it's been funded by several rounds of National Science Foundation funding, so they've been great. I've shipped all of my faculty there for a couple of uh, training sessions. So um, we'll put our own spin on it, but uh, it does everything that these national reports say you should do, you know, um, the uh, Engineer 2020 and, and those sorts of things. Uh, and uh, help students connect their math, their science, and their engineering in robust ways. It connects non-technical skills in robust ways, the communication, uh, the global awareness, service learning, professionalism, and ethics, all integrated very tightly with these programs. Uh, And kids learn a lot of basic engineering concepts. They learn to do some programming. They learn circuits. They learn a little bit of statics, fluids, thermo. um, And... um, you know, they just do stunning things. I mean, I've, I've taught in this curriculum for the last 18 years, and um, I always kind of joke that, you know, kids do such surprising things because they didn't know they couldn't. You know, I mean, they've never been to engineering school before. They think everybody does it this way. And so uh, since they didn't know they couldn't, they, they just do stunning things. Uh, we've had kids finish the freshman year and do REUs at places like Penn and Duke, and uh, which, you know, usually freshmen don't get to do. So... Um, uh, we'll be doing that. We'll be building projects into the sophomore and junior year as well. As, and, of course, senior design projects want those to be industry-based because yeah. that way they're real. You have real clients, real mentors out in the workplace. And um, so uh, it's a way for us to take our size and make it our strength. Nice. And and um, and so it sounds as though a lot of the innovation that you're bringing is coming from the work that you did at uh, Louisiana Tech. Are there other... There are, there are quite a few new engineering programs and quite a bit of innovation going on in existing programs around around the world. Uh, what other what other uh, new models are you paying attention to? Well, some of it, a little bit is our focus. So we're doing a general engineering degree with concentrations in mechanical and chemical. For mechanical, we're going to go after a modern manufacturing focus. I'm firmly convinced that 3D printing is going to take the manufacturing world, turn it on edge. So we are putting together a robust, you know, uh, lab facilities and things to support that. And then uh, pharmaceutical with Campbell's uh, very large health science footprint, a pharmacy school for over 30 years, uh, is a little bit different way of doing that. And 3D printing, I, I saw last week where they 3D printed the first medicine ever. So I think that there's some innovations there. And then we're, we've been fortunate. We've hired some fantastic folks. We've got Lee Reinerson from Purdue, which you know has one of the top engineering education PhD programs in the United States. Um, Hired Lynn Albers from NC State, also extremely innovative. Uh, so uh, they're going to bring their own ideas in, and we'll certainly uh, let them help shape things. Okay. And um, so I'm a, a new student coming to Campbell in August. Um, 
how's how's my arrival on campus going to be different than say um, some other engineering program? Well, and we'll start that engineering. You know, in day one, you'll do that very robust freshman engineering curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, we um, uh, we'll be using an Arduino microcontroller, so we start that on day one. Uh, students have a, a lab kit instead of a book. Uh, that they'll start with. So uh, one of the first things they do is a little line-following program with rubber ducks. You know, you can do some fun things with that. So we'll hit the ground running on day one. And, um, you know, certainly we'll do professional organizations. Uh, we do some uh, outreaches, a lot of great folks in the region and, and, of course, folks I know across the country that will tap to come in and talk to students. Uh, one of the things the curriculum does is really build in a professionalism and service learning uh, in really robust ways. There's some pretty hefty requirements freshman year. So those things will kick off pretty fast as well. Um, and those are generally things that students you know, necessarily uh, do when they arrive in an engineering school. Yeah, so can you talk about that some more? Uh, we, in, here on Big Beacon, we emphasize what other people call soft skills. We call them shift skills and sure. think that there's a rigorous way to attack them and, and that... Uh, a lot of what we usually do is pretty ad hoc. So, what what talk, talk about the robustness uh, in your professionalism that that you just were referring to? Yeah, certainly. You know, of course, uh, ethics and professionalism are cornerstones for um, engineering, and you, you really have to start those uh, freshman year. I mean, you can't start that sort of stuff down the pipe. We'll actually do a, a professional uh, engineering society, a student organization. So we'll uh, have that as our first student organization when students come in. So we'll start with activities and things there at the very beginning. But we also require that students attend some professional development training opportunities. Again, we'll have uh, seminars where we bring people in. There'll be some things on campus or other speakers come that the students can take advantage of, but they are required to attend uh, like five to ten of those in, uh, every semester. They have to do some reflective writing about those activities. Uh, and the same is true for service. So there'll be a list of uh, service-type activities that they have to pick from. Uh, it could be things like restocking the lab supplies. They could do that. That's something that needs to be done. But we also were sponsoring a FIRST Robotics team. We had a very first, a FIRST Robotics team here uh, in Harnett County. Uh, they uh, went to the semis at State this past week. It's fantastic. So we'll need some kids who would like to men- spend some time mentoring them. Uh, and uh, so a lot of opportunities like that they can take advantage of. Great. And... Um so one of the one of the challenges, and we've got about a minute left in this segment. Uh, when you hire faculty from the old culture, they sometimes they, without meaning to, bring some of the dysfunction of that old culture to a new program. And and so one of the challenges is hiring. You mentioned that you're hiring some some stars from other places, but as you, you know, you'll probably hire some um, some young folks, and they were all brought up through the same dysfunctional system that we all kind of have been through the last 20 some years so right. how do you avoid or what do you, not avoid or what do you do to in hiring and and uh, onboarding to to um, change the conversation about the com- the culture well you know we're we're hiring people who have experience doing the kinds of things that we're doing so uh, Lee Ronison ran the freshman engineering program at Purdue uh, and, um, you know, they've done lots and lots of innovative things, Purdue's a very, very innovative institution when it comes to engineering education. He's, engineering education research is what his PhD is in, so again, very well-versed in all the, the sorts of things they're doing. Uh, Lynn Albers as well ran um, some GK-12 programs and things at NC State, has done a lot of really innovative K-12 outreach uh, so is very familiar with the project-based hands-on approach. Um, actually, had Woody Flowers at MIT took his uh, innovative course there. So, um, 
So I'm hiring people that um, kind of get it and have experience doing the kinds of things we're wanting to do. Great. And so um, I think what you know, we want to talk a little bit more about this in our, our next segment. Uh, this is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, Jenna Carpenter. And in the next segment, we're going to talk a little bit more about this founding of a, a, a new engineering school in North Carolina. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-472. 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Get the coaching, uh, training, and deep faculty development that you need to help transform higher education at your institution at 3joy.com. And in the last segment, we were talking about the start of a new um, new engineering school uh, at Campbell University in uh, Research Triangle, North Carolina. With uh, we're talking with uh, the founding dean of that program, Jenna Carpenter. And and Jenna, um, you know, we're, during the break, we were talking about um, you know one of the it's it's um, uh, it's a bit of a conundrum, you know. So we we've we've kind of professionalized engineering education research, and yet. As it's actually the what that does is it makes getting funding in engineering education research legitimate and sort of on a par with technical research. But in the same way that getting technical funding kind of takes us away from the kids and doing the kinds of things that we need to to create a really transformative experience for undergraduates, there's a central there's a tension between the status of faculty getting lots of research money and doing publication and actually doing the right thing in the classroom. And so, um, how do we, how do we, uh, how do we cut that, that knot? How do we, how do we uh, bust through that so that we can actually do the right thing in the classroom? Sure. Great question. Um, you know, I've, I've tried to hire, I guess, really enthusiastic people that kind of get my vision or and on board with that. Um, when you hire bright folks who are excited, have a lot of great ideas, and you, um, you, know, you support those and, and help uh, provide the resources they need, then um, a lot of times you know, they, can, they can take it and run with it. We, uh, 
administratively, uh, the way that we had been organized at Louisiana Tech is really kind of what I'm doing here. We're all on a team. We're, we're a team. We meet uh, several hours a week. We throw a lot of ideas out there, uh, toss those around, figure out what might work. If you've got a problem, we try to brainstorm it. Uh, our lab manager uh, is sitting in the group, our secretary. Uh, we just did uh, Strengths Finder, and everybody did Strengths Finder. So when you kind of put a team together and, and brainstorm and, and work it out like that rather than a more of a hierarchical um, uh, arrangement, I think you do better, right? Um, you know, I've always been passionate about excellence. That's that's sort of my goal. And uh, once people realize that, then they kind of get on board. And so, if somebody's got a cool new idea, then you know, we all want to hear that. Uh, it doesn't mean you're you know changing things every five minutes, but sure, always looking for a better way to do things. So, creating that kind of a culture in which you work really helps fuel and foster because you value the sorts of things that you're trying to get. It's not that you know people don't need to get research and funding and papers, and that's all good and, and great. You got to do that sort of stuff, but it really helps foster, I guess, the right kind of culture. Well, and and so I think, and I'm listening to you. You know, the idea that we're actually going to have a team and real collaboration is is kind of news to the academy, right? That's not yeah. something that we typically typically do. We you hire people in as individuals. We say that all the we say both implicitly and explicitly that all of the incentives for you are to do your own thing and get become famous as a researcher, publish lots of papers, get lots of money. And oh yes, and we expect you to be a great teacher too. Wink wink. And if and 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 when you're not, uh, there's very little excuse for not um, checking the boxes on the research, but excuses are typically made on on the teaching side. So right, right. so how's that going to be different at Campbell? Well, you know, Campbell uh, is a place where teaching matters, right? I mean, that's, you know, we'll have an undergraduate program, only we won't have a master's program or a PhD program. So teaching is what we're about. So, you know, when I'm hiring people, they know that that's what matters here. And so, you know, you get people for whom, you know, that's sort of their ideal. They want to come place someplace where it really matters and it makes a difference. So yeah. that helps. But there will be, there will be tenure. Yeah, sure. And There's so they'll have to, they'll jump stuff, through right. tenure. And so what, right. what will the, uh, what are the are the criteria for a tenure going to be substantially different? Uh, if, for example, when they started Olin, they abolished tenure, and they still they have criteria for promotion, but it's it's uh, it's a bit different, and they have a bit more flexibility because they're not uh, viewing it as as a permanent hire. Yeah, you know, we're, we, we will have tenure, but um, again, we're going to be more flexible. And for us, because we're building a school, um, you know, the the teaching end matters, and the innovation is going to matter. So. Um, uh, you know, the kind of funding and, and research you do around that. I mean, I feel like it would be derelict for us to build an engineering school and not do some uh, research on it because we've got some really cool, unique opportunities. And so we want to be sure we take advantage of those. But at the same time, you know, teaching is what matters here. That's why you're coming is because you're interested in investing in yourself and doing that and making that your focus. So. Sure. So you've been a... Um You've been a pro- pro- proponent of the NAE Grand Challenges and on various boards and committees for that. In, in what ways will challenges play a role in engineering education at Campbell? Well, uh, the Grand Challenges themselves I'm a, a huge fan of uh, because they really do communicate um, in, in a way that we've really struggled to do. So they, they talk about engineering in ways that um, – you, know, you can see how does it how does it matter? How does it impact the world? How does it make a difference? They resonate really well with both high school students and college students. They sort of ignite those passions they already have, um, and so we're using grand challenge language, if you will, 
um, in uh, the the ways that we talk about our curriculum and the kinds of things that we're going to do. We were just talking about a potential design project today, um, designing beehives, because people are starting to put beehives in downtown areas because they don't have all the pesticides, which are killing mm. bees. So, so we're going to do you know, some cool things along those lines. But um, certainly, you know, building an entering school, you've got a lot of grand challenges, um, trying to find the right people and... Um, uh, recruit students. If you're a brand new school, you know you've got to people have to know you're here. Um, and I'm, you know, I've been here about a year, so you've got to get to know the student body here because they're going to be different than kids from some other school or institution. Uh, we're trying to get out into the community. Well, we're in Harnett County, which is a rural area, a farm economy, a lot of ways. Um, so trying to get out there and do some outreach, right? Because you're sort of trying to grow interest, student interest, um, uh, for later years. So. Those are some of the challenges, I guess. And then, you know, Campbell's been, um, at least at the undergraduate level, mostly a, a liberal arts-type institution. So it's different bringing in something like engineering. So we, we push the envelope in, in ways, and they've been great to work with. But, you know, we've got to figure out how we're going to do those things. Yeah, and so, um, you know, one of the things... Um, you know, so challenges work in part because they give students a sense of, of autonomy and mastery. And, um, and some of the programs, so if you look at some of the cool things that are going around uh, elsewhere in the world, Lehigh University's Mountaintop, uh, Tventa's uh, University of Tventa in the Netherlands, uh, Atlas program that combines liberal arts and engineering, uh, UFMG, big public university, uh, bringing students into the change process directly. Um, uh, iFoundry bringing students into the change process directly, Olin College having students as part of a partner year, a common thread through all of those is involving students in actually curriculum design and planning of in institutional design. So in what ways have, have students been involved or are they going to be involved in actually um, designing and, and um, helping innovate and, and um, uh, take, take opportunities in their education? Yeah, we really actually have sort of uh, built uh, our freshman class that way. You know, they're going to be our inaugural group, and we're going to need them. Uh, we're going to need them to help us figure out what works, what doesn't work, uh, what would they like to be different. So we'll be very open. We'll be asking those questions. Uh, these kids are going to have to be leaders for the groups that come behind them. So uh, we um, will have student uh, mentors, uh, student TAs that help in the evenings with the lab, uh, and uh, we're recruiting from some existing students in you know some of the STEM disciplines, so that we have a few kids for, for this first class coming in to do some of that. So, um, you know, they'll I think be a, a pretty robust part of what we're doing, uh, and, and partner with us in a lot of ways. That's one of the reasons I think that being a part of the inaugural freshman class is going to be really cool. It's not an opportunity you'd have uh, at a, an established place. So we're certainly looking to do that. Um, uh, involve them. You know, they'll need to help us figure out what student organizations exactly do we want to do. Do we want to do a mini Baja team or do we want to do something else? So we'll be involving them and asking them and, and getting them to help us figure that out as we go. Great. And, and um, in, you know, in, and uh, we sort of started our conversation talking about women's programs. And in, in a whole new engineer, we got hammered by um, well, not hammered, but some people suggested that we could have spent more time talking about women's issues in a whole new engineer. And we, we spoke about them briefly, but we 
our belief was that if you get the culture right, that um, that is a culture of listening, a culture of participation, a culture of noticing um, an innovative culture, that that a lot of the, the practices that we currently have, the siloed women's programs and minorities programs, a lot of that it doesn't necessarily become unnecessary, but it, it becomes less... Um, less central and less less urgent and so I guess I'm wondering um, as you as you uh, given your interest in in women's programs and given that you're creating a culture from scratch what's your what's your view are you going to need the siloed women's uh, programs uh, or are you going to start something like ad, advancing uh, at at Campbell or or, or, you, or is is the new culture going to kind of balance and, and like Olin, you'll have 50-50 uh, gender balance and, and things will be pretty cool from the get-go. What's, what's your sense? Well, I wish that we wouldn't need those, but uh, we probably will. I, I would agree that, you know, if you do create a culture where there's a lot of respect, a lot of listening, a lot of the issues, implicit bias and things that goes around, um, uh, you know, doesn't do those sorts of things. And to be honest, one of the things we're going to do is something that I did at Louisiana Tech uh, that I really borrowed from Beth Holloway at Purdue. We're doing training at the, at the get-go because if you're going to work in teams, you're going to be with people who aren't like you in lots of ways, and you better learn to value the diverse skills and experiences they bring because if you don't, then they can't use those to help the team. So we will do training even starting freshman year. So I think talking about those issues openly and in very overt sorts of ways, I'm hoping, will decrease uh, that. But you know, students will come to us from the existing culture, and that stuff's rampant in the culture. So mm-hmm. we still will need to do some of that because um, women come to us without some of the skills they need just because our culture has never let them practice or develop those skills. You know, women don't negotiate, for example. You get really hammered if you try to do that. So it's not that women couldn't be good at negotiating. They've just never done any of it. So we'll still need some of that, but uh, I am hoping that um, that the culture we develop here will be one that uh, fosters a, a supportive environment for a wide range of students and values a lot of people. But again, we'll, it will require we do some specific training of all of our students. Well, and and we've got about um, uh, two minutes left, and so what um, what th- what else would you? Know, we've had a pretty wide ranging conversation here, but I'd like to give you a chance to talk about some of the remaining things that are on your mind that we haven't had a chance to talk. What what things should our listeners know about all the different subjects that we've talked about, or other things that are on your mind today? Well, I would guess um, probably thinking maybe about women engineering, um, mm-hmm. women in STEM. You know, the the main issues out there are things like stereotypes and implicit bias or unconscious bias, um, and those are permeated throughout our whole culture. People don't mean to um, to perpetuate that stuff. A lot of times they're not conscious or aware of it, but, you know, it's everybody. It's a soccer coach and the next-door neighbor and Aunt Mary and a checkout person at the grocery store. All of us contribute to that uh, negative culture that discourages girls. So if we're going to make a change, uh, we've all got to get on board. And, uh, you know, women now number men in college two to one. Kindergarten classes were majority minority two years ago for the first time. So if we can't figure out how to attract and retain women and underrepresented students to engineering, then 10 years from now, we're not going to be producing engineers. And we've already been underproducing for the last 10 or 15 years. So that is huge economic uh, consequences for us as a country, so it's a, it's a really is an urgent issue that everybody needs to get on board with. And if uh, our listeners want to uh, find out more about uh, your work and and um, uh, where can they go to to learn more? 
you can Google me. There's a lot of stuff out there. Uh, you could do that. Uh, happy to email me. Uh, my email is just my last name, carpenter at campbell.edu. And I'd be happy to chat with anybody. A lot of great resources and things out there people can use. Great. And I'm really uh, grateful for your uh, uh, time to j- today, Jenna. Uh, really wish you all the luck as uh, as uh, new faculty and, and students uh, come in the door. You're going to have your hands full uh, with the startup, and, and, um, but um, it's important work, and, um, and a lot of people are going to be, be watching and, uh, and uh, rooting for you. All right. Well, thanks, Dave. Appreciate the opportunity a lot. That's great to have you. Great to have you on the show. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with Dave Goldberg. Special thanks to our guest Jenna Carpenter and help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at BigBeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, as we continue our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.